You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 37, Behavioral Addiction. Some people say that they're addicted to chocolate, and this is a a colloquial use of the term, but some things are addictive like drugs, but they are just behaviors like eating chocolate. Today, we're going to discuss behavioral addictions. Are they real? What is a behavioral addiction? And can you be addicted to your smartphone? Now, let's start with uh, maybe a definition of addiction. Uh, Kim, who my, my co-host, who is an expert on addiction, uh, how would you define addiction? Well, it's a great question to start off with because nobody really agrees upon the definition of addiction. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, yeah, so that, you know, already we're starting from a bit of an of a ambiguous space. Um, but certainly for the purposes of my classes that I teach and how I think about when I engage with topics of addiction in a scholarly way, I actually like to embrace a definition of addiction that was put forward by um, a colleague in the UK. His name is Robert West. And he wrote a book called Theory of Addiction. And he defines addiction as the loss of control over reward-seeking behavior. And I like this definition for a couple reasons. Number one, because it speaks to what I say is the very crux of addiction, right? We can all kind of imagine in our mind's eye, like what addiction sort of looks like. Like, you know, we we probably all have somebody in our lives that have um, struggled or are living well with an addiction. And kind of that core feature is really around that loss of control, right? Folks will dis- describe their behavior sort of like they, they can't control it. They feel compelled to uh, continue to use, even in spite of those negative consequences that often uh, are associated with addiction, right? So they know, uh, you know, they're at risk of potentially even losing their children or mm-hmm. their marriage or their job, right? So in spite of these things, and that's what makes it really challenging for somebody being on the outside to recognize and say, oh my goodness, how, you know, how are you still using or engaging in that, in that behavior when you know it's putting all these things at risk, right? So that compulsive nature is exemplified in that definition of a loss of control. And then the other reason I like this definition is because it speaks to not just drug seeking, right? So loss of control over a reward seeking behavior. So in this sense, it's inclusive. It speaks to other forms of addiction, not just with substances. The other piece that I like to ensure, you know, everybody's on the same page when it when we come to thinking about addiction is we need to look inside the brain right and and what we do know over you know decades of research with substance use disorders or addictions is that no matter what the substance is they all seem to converge on the, the uh, similar parts of the brain right and we we talked about this in um our one of our earliest uh, podcast episodes on marijuana or cannabis, that that key system that seems to be activated is something called the mesocorticolimbic dopamine pathway. And that's a big mouthful. So just let me break it down even more simply, is that we have this population of cells in the midbrain, that's where the word meso comes from, and, or the middle part of the brain. And they, when they're activated, they uh, lead to the production of Um, dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter, and when dopamine is released into these key brain regions, uh, that mediates that subjective sensation of pleasure, and it also associates all the 
cues, the stimuli in our environment, so who we're with, what it smells like, what we're seeing, it associates those things with the experience of drug reward. So there are other systems in the brain that are also implicated in addiction, but I don't want us to get too far down uh, into the neuroscience because it can kind of um, be a lot of big words, let's yeah. put it that way. So the, the, the important thing is that uh, when we define addiction, we, we can use you know that, that definition of Robert West, but also critically behaviors and substances are addictive if they impinge or activate that those key brain circuits. Yeah. So I want to, before we talk about the brain, I'm interested in this loss of control over reward-seeking behavior. And, you know, loss of control, and this is really relevant to the, I'm really studying consciousness a lot lately, and it's a loss of conscious control, right? Because That's right. in some sense, your brain mm -hmm. is, of course, controlling what you do. <laughs> it's just a, not the part mm -hmm. that you might care about, right? But this is about right. sort of your higher values and your your conscious mind. And, and is that mm -hmm. able to overcome the other parts of your mind that are at odds with your values or mm -hmm. something like that, right? That's right. So we say that these behaviors became, become very automatized, right? They become automatic. There are those key brain circuits that mediate those habits, behaviors, right? We don't think about brushing our teeth or washing our hair. Thank goodness, right? If we were actually engaging in conscious thought while we were doing all these activities, my goodness, that would be draining, right? We need to reserve those parts of the brain that are involved in conscious control to, to keep a watch out for anything that might threaten our survival. Right. So as uh, you know, the, the theory is that as addictions become more ingrained, uh, we lose that conscious control, those mechanisms involved in, in, in dampening down those signals that say use, use, use. And we're just using without thinking. The, the other part I like is that it's about reward seeking behavior, which which means that all addictions are behavioral addictions. Right. It's, it's not that you're addicted mm. to cocaine. You're addicted to mm -hmm. taking cocaine. Right. Which mm -hmm. I think is an, an mm -hmm. interesting way to frame mm -hmm. it. Right. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's talk about the neuroscience. So it's interesting because it sounds like the dopaminergic uh, pathways and other you know brain areas are so well associated with addictive behavior that they almost become part of the definition. And it's it's interesting. So we do know that behaviors can activate the pathway and not just substances. How can a, a behavior lead to the same neural activation as uh, like taking a drug? Well, that's the very question that scientists for many years actually questioned and criticized the notion of behavioral addictions because it was embedded in the core belief that it is the drugs that cause the addiction, right? And that, you know, I'm sure most of our listeners are kind of sitting there in that kind of uncomfortable place thinking, well, yeah, it's the cocaine, right? Cocaine is getting into the bloodstream, it's traveling up into the, into the brain, and it's activating those key pathways. Well, wait a second, right? when we're eating or drinking or engaging in other kinds of behaviors, is that actually activating that same pathway? Well, it is. The difference is that, first of all, substances will activate that pathway above and beyond what's normal, right? So cocaine will really uh, target that system and activate it to an extent that is, you know, what we'd say is supra-physiological, above normal. But the important thing to, to, to recognize, and Jim, you were sort of alluding to it a minute ago, it's how we define addiction. Addiction is not just about the drug, right? It's not the drug that causes the addiction. It's the combination of the addictive drug or behavior of vulnerable individual and stress. And here I'm paraphrasing uh, one of the other great scholars in addiction. His name is Dr. Gabor Mate, and he's a, uh, a medical doctor that works in the downtown east side of Vancouver, working with some of the most oppressed and marginalized populations uh, in Canada that are, um, you know, in, injection drug users, very much marginalized and 
he has developed a lot of theories around addiction and, and he's honing in on this notion that it's not just about the substance. And so, yes, all these behaviors act on these pathways, perhaps not as much as drugs do, but it's a combination of all those other factors that lead to addiction. Okay, so there are a whole lot of behaviors, and taking drugs is one of those behaviors, and they have varying amounts of how much they activate this system, which is sort of, it's you can think of it like a sliding scale there, but we just sort of draw a line somewhere and say, things that activate it this much, we're happy to call addictive behaviors. Because we, because you do talk about some drugs are addictive and some are not, right? Yeah. So I, I actually argue that caffeine is not addictive, and uh, but marijuana is, episode. right? It's not as though coffee doesn't activate the dopaminergic system, right? It's just there's a threshold line, and things that are sort of above the threshold for how much they activate this system are considered addictive. Is that right? Well, yes and no. I mean, caffeine actually doesn't, uh, so what we know, it doesn't activate mesolimbic dopamine, oh, which is not uh, hitting the key neural brain region. Yeah. No, it, it activates prefrontal cortical dopamine, but it doesn't seem to act. And that's, of course, we can like really, really start to get fine-grained here. If you've got a latte that has lots of chocolate and cream in it, of course, it's going to activate mesolimbic dopamine, but it doesn't activate it to signal reward to the same extent as other substances do. And so that's the difference between like addictive substances are those that produce a state of intoxication, right? So they make us high or drunk. Uh, that's the thing that we're chasing, right? And we don't really get that with caffeine. We get this sense of behavioral uh, activation of behavioral alertness, but we're not getting intoxicated. So if somebody's addicted to sweet lattes, they're actually addicted to the sweetness and not the caffeine. <laughs> Correct. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, um, all right, let's discuss this further. So, uh, let's talk about what addictive behaviors are. So, I like to talk about this in terms of like, so almost separating out different um, categories of behavioral addictions. So, what I want to start out talking about today is those behavioral addictions that are grounded in natural rewards. Okay. Right? So, remember, I talked about the, the mesocortical limbic dopamine pathway, that part of the brain that seems to be activated by all substances. It's not there so that we respond to substances. That doesn't make any sense. Um, or it's not there to respond to cocaine. It's there to respond to or be activated, or it is activated, when the organism encounters stimuli uh, or engages in behaviors that lead to rewarding events, right? Mm -hmm. So when you think back to our ancestors, you know, going through the savanna, trying to find food when, when, when food was unpredictable, or even a sexual mate, uh, all these things um, are important for, for the survival of the organism. So when the, the organism encountered these, you know, a tasty piece of beef, uh, you know, or, or I shouldn't say beef, <laughs> uh, when, the, or, when the caveman <laughs> or caveman encountered, you know, a buffalo, right? This is, this is a huge feast, right? So when they're eating it, uh, it's going to release all these uh, neurotransmitters and hormones that signal this is tasty, plan for it in the future. If you're hungry again in the future, you now you know where to find that buffalo and so on and so forth. So this pathway is normally activated when organisms encounter naturally rewarding events, okay? Mm -hmm. So it makes sense to think about this also with those naturally rewarding events. So things like food and sex. And I would argue that uh, the, the behavior to attain the food and sex can indeed lead to uh, a phenomenon known as addiction, right? And um, so, you know, uh, this this can be challenging, right? Some people really, really argue against this notion, but um, I'm hopefully going to describe today what those phenomena look like and try to, again, draw those 
um, similarities between what we see with certain types of food addiction and sex addiction right. as to what we see with addictions to substances. Yeah. So, and, and you know, the, evolutionarily, this makes a lot of sense. The, the people who weren't, who didn't find uh, food and sex pleasurable probably would die or not reproduce. I like to tell my students right. that the only reason all of you are sitting here in the classroom is because all of your ancestors were hungry and horny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And let's let's you know, let's talk about this even further. Let's talk about food. Right. And and, and what what are we eating today that is different from what our ancestors Cheetos. Ate, right? Cheetos. Yes, exactly. And McDonald's hamburgers and things that are designed to activate that system in the brain. Right. It, it, if we think about the progression of food sources going from very, very, very natural, right? Like eating, you know, uh, vegetables that we've cultivated in our gardens and eating, you know, beef that has, has been raised on a farm. This is very different from the food sources that we're, we're encountering today. And our, that neural system is designed to be hyper responsive to high calorie, high fat, high sugar, food sources because that kind of food is highly calorically dense it pa it ma makes the biggest bang for the buck right so when our ancestors would have encountered that high calorie food that would have led to even greater activation of those systems in the brain and that's why today that adaptive mechanism has now become maladaptive in some people because we are presented with a wide array of food sources that meet that criteria for, you know, really, really activating that system in the brain. You know, and again, I it's a com combination of the people who are at risk and, and then also eating a lot of these types of foods that can lead to uh, eating disorders. I want to add that I read um, an anthropological study of a contemporary hunter-gatherer who was who just happened upon a beehive and in one sitting drank a pint of honey. Oh! Now, now, you know, we might think, oh, my God, how could you do that? But, Sick. you know, yeah. this is the, the situation they're in where fat and salt and uh, sugar are so sugar. rare that it actually mm -hmm. is adaptive to, you know, drink mm -hmm. a pint of honey. Like you can mm -hmm. imagine now what what like we're like when you can basically buy the equivalent of a pint of honey, at, you know, at <laughs> every every 10 feet down a, any city. Right. Uh, how That's much right. how much is like eating? How much would somebody have to normally eat to be considered like eating too much? Well, so that is you know, like, and I do want to specify that eating disorders are a broad, a broad category of disorders um, that includes anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. And today I'm going to focus in on another category of eating disorder known as binge eating disorder. And that's kind of what you were just describing with that hunter-gatherer, sitting down and eating the, norm, uh, the amount of calories that is way above normal. And that is certainly one of the criteria for a binge eating disorder, which is essentially that, that you're sitting down, you're consuming in one sitting uh, the amount of calories that would be beyond a normal food so or a, a normal meal. So that's around, you know, and the, they don't put numbers in the in the DSM, which is the, the Diagnostic Bible. But it's, you know, we can think about it like 8,000 to 10,000 calories in a sitting. And, you know, let's contrast that with how many calories we, you know, it's recommended for males and females to eat is 2,000 to 2,500 calories a day. Right. Right. So this is, you know, on the order of threefold above normal. But like these, these modern foods make it. Rel like much easier to actually eat 10,000 calories in a sitting because it's so concentrated, right? 
That's right. And think about it if you look at the analogy with things like cocaine, right? That cocaine actually comes from the coca leaf, uh, which is a plant that's found uh, and, and it grows naturally in parts of South America. And, uh, you know, indigenous folks in South America would have harvested the leaves of the coca plant and made it into a tea, which they would have drank to combat altitude sickness. Uh, or give them a little bit of a stimulant uh, effect if they actually chewed the leaf. And then as civilization progressed, we took that leaf and we refined it and we turned it into a powder. And lo and behold, that's cocaine. And then we've even uh, taken it e to an even more potent form where we remove the base of the cocaine uh, and, and, and make co uh, cocaine hydrochloride and we turn that into free base cocaine, which is uh, a form of smoking crack cocaine, right? And that's essentially what's happened with food sources uh, or food where we've taken it a very natural and we refine and refine and made it more potent and potent and potent. And that's what scientists believe promote that binge aspect of eating, right? And which is very similar to the binge of cocaine. You're getting these lovely bursts of dopamine in the brain that's going boom, 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 boom. And then that's saying more, 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 right? Because that's what the, 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 that system is hardwired to do. Yeah. To put this in a broader um, context, this is all examples of supernormal stimuli, which is like you're, mm -hmm. you're, you've evolved to respond to a certain cue, right? So, you know, food that is nutritious tends to have cal calories in it and it's rare. So your body's like, oh, eat more stuff with calories. But then with technology, we're able to identify the cue that signals that there's something good and maximize that cue without necessarily maximizing the health associated with it. And I think that this is a, you know, you can fool birds with supernormal stimuli. It's like an extreme version, right? And I think that mm -hmm. it also applies to stuff we're going to talk about later, like gambling and pornography, which in some sense are supernormal stimuli of some of the other things that are normally good for you, right? Exactly. Exactly. So this eating uh, 8,000 to 10,000 calories, I thought, I didn't think that was like, I thought that was called Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Isn't that the scientific term for it? Thanksgiving Day? Yep. So I'm Canadian yeah, so, and American, so I'm lucky enough to have two Thanksgiving. So I can like right. binge twice a year. Yeah. Humble and brag. And three times. <laughs> humble, humble brag. <laughs> And then, and then a third time because Christmas is around the corner, right? So, ah, yes. yeah, 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 yeah. So if our listeners are going, "Ooh, whoops!" Like that's that's what I that's what happened when I ate that piece of pumpkin pie at the end of a, a giant meal. No, that's not actually binge eating disorder. So it's important to recognize that uh, these conditions, uh, as specified in in the DSM, it's it's a pattern of behavior, right? It's not a one off. Mm -hmm. It's it's repeatedly engaging these behaviors, and in fact, that is written in the the diagnostic criteria that it has to have happened uh, repeatedly over a period of weeks, and in some cases over the period of a year. Uh, and it's not the only criteria, right? So this this kind of binge behavior is also accompanied by feelings of guilt and worthlessness. Uh, it's also uh, accompanied by depression. And, and over time, what you see is that the behavior in which people are engaging in, so that binge eating, is originally to try to stave off feelings of loneliness or poor mood, but over time it actually serves to produce it, right? So over time you're actually getting more depressed and feeling more worthless and and, and guilty. Is that, and is that is, important? Like I know that some people just have higher food reward, uh, but they're not eating to fill a hole in their soul. Is like that um, feelings of guilt and worthlessness, is that is that really important? Yeah, it's part of the diagnostic criteria. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it has to be accompanied by it's like these psychological distress. 
Okay. And then the other piece is that, um, as with all the other uh, eating disorders, it's accompanied by a sense of disordered body self-image, right? And that unnecessary esteem is given to body shape, right? So people won't love me because I'm overweight. Um, That's the common um, piece of all the the uh, eating disorders. And this is what drives the cycle, right? Okay. Is that, you know, you, you, you feel this shame and, and sense of worthlessness and then you're eating because you're trying to combat those feelings and it's just producing more of it. It's driving the cycle. So importantly, uh, for our listeners, binge eating disorder is, is distinct from bulimia nervosa, uh, where bulimia nervosa is binge eating, but it's also accompanied by purging, right? So, um, actually trying to get rid of the calories through vomiting or other means, uh, binge eating disorder doesn't have that. You're, you're, you're just eating and you're not actually, that's not accompanied by ways to try to get rid okay. of the calories. So what's the relationship between binge eating disorder and obesity? Well, they're pretty related. Uh, they, you know, scientists estimate that about two thirds of individuals that would qualify as obese probably have binge eating disorder. But that means that you can be obese and not have a binge eating disorder. So um, it's, it's kind of, they are related to some extent. Uh, some scientists actually suggest that binge eating disorder is the biggest cause of obesity, but it's not the only cause, right? So, mm-hmm. of course, both of these um, tend to be associated amongst folks that have BMIs or body mass indexes in the in the obese range. But I do want to also point out that uh, you don't need to be obese to have a diagnosis of binge eating disorder. So it's kind of you know body weight is part of it, but it's 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 not all of well, it. Well, people people. Some people's weight is very hard to change, right? Like some people are naturally mm-hmm. very heavy and very or very naturally thin, and what they eat mm-hmm. doesn't affect their weight much. And mm-hmm. other people, their weight varies enormously with what they eat, right? Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, how common mm-hmm. is binge eating disorder? It's suggested to be fairly common. Uh, it's only recently been included as a diagnostic uh, condition in the DSM-5 as of 2013, I believe, 2013. So we haven't really been systematically tracking it epidemiologically uh, since then. But uh, there are some suggestions that it is much more common than the other eating disorders such as anorexia, which is actually only 1% of the population and bulimia is about 3%, 3 to 4%. Uh, so we think think it is the most common eating disorder. And importantly, whereas anorexia and bulimia tends to be, it's, well, anorexia is definitely skewed more female. Bulimia might be equally represented among genders. Um, But certainly that's the case with uh, binge eating disorder as well. It is equally represented among genders. It also affects visible minorities to to a great extent, whereas anorexia and bulimia tends to skew more uh, Caucasian. And then also the thing about binge eating disorder is it also seems to be disproportionately represented in uh, folks that would be considered lower socioeconomic status. And that kind of makes sense when you think about um, other pieces of the equation where, for example, a lot of the foods uh, that are relatively cheap also tend to be those that are not very good for you, right? So if you can imagine if you uh, have to feed your kids and you've got 40 bucks, uh, $40 is going to get you a couple apples at Whole Foods, whereas it's going to get you like a couple Big Mac meals. I don't know. McDonald's seems to be 
inordinately expensive these days relative than, than what I you remember, but it's going to get you more calories for your buck, right? So mm-hmm. when you think about um, if you are on a limited income uh, to try to feed your family or feed yourself, it, it's very, uh, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to get really good nutritious food uh, that's going to fill you up. Yeah. And I want to add that there's a sort of a feedback cycle with this too, because a lot of um, poor people live in areas that are food deserts. And the only place that they can get food is like a quickie mark kind of place that only sells Mm -hmm. like chips and other crap, which Mm -hmm. is sold because the people maybe around there are poor, but then that's the only thing available. And then you develop a culture that that's what you find comforting Mm -hmm. and that's what you want to eat. And then next thing you know, that's like the main part of the diet, right? Yep. And I think about that with the devastating impact that these food deserts uh, in our northern communities among our indigenous peoples, right? That is very much like, you know, you look at the cost of some of our, like even uh, like a, a watermelon is like 25 bucks in, in Nunavut. Right. So fre- fresh, uh, fresh, yeah. fr- fresh fruit and vegetables are, of course, very expensive yeah. because it's, you have to fly them in and it's, you know, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then when you think about these lower socioeconomic demographics, they also have histories of intergenerational trauma, uh, right? The visible minority groups, right? They've experienced systemic racism. Oh, that's the stress so part all, of addiction, right? Yeah, exactly. So all these features kind of put certain groups more at risk. And then, you know, I'm not, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole. And then, you know, you have binge eating disorder or obesity, and then you're just further discriminated in our society because heaven forbid that you are not a perfect size six as a female, for example. Right. So, you know, all these things are so, there's so much intersectionality with this. So I'm going to ask you your favorite question now. Tell me more about the brain and what this, what's happening in the brain with this. <laughs> oh, well, I could go on for years. Well, so I do want to qualify that um, with food, food addictions and, and eating disorders, you're going to have differential activation of many, many different circuits in the brain because food is, is so important for our survival. So it's not just going to be that mesocorticolimbic dopamine pathway. Um, but let's hone in on there for a moment, right? So um, what's really cool about eating disorders is that you can develop animal models, right? And, and when you think about our behavioral addictions, and I'll talk about this when we touch on other topics, a lot of the science around our, or our knowledge around behavioral addictions comes is crucially derived from animal models because those are the ways in which we can control for other variables, right? So um, a lot, this is why there's been some really elegant research looking at the neural, neural circuits or neural implication, neurobiology of eating disorders because you can develop animal models. So, so by that, you mean like studying rats to understand humans, for example? Yeah, 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 exactly. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of my colleagues, Paul Kenny, who's at the, um, who's, who's a scientist in the in the states, uh, he's developed this animal model where you basically uh, can give, you know, you separate two different populations of, of of rats, and in one population you give them what's called the SAD diet, which is the standard American diet, uh, diet, uh, which is high fat, <laughs> yeah, right, and very sad, high fat, high sugar, and you. You, you you can give these animals that diet in like rat pellets, right? And and you give them unlimited access to this, right? So they can eat this like high fat, high sugar, high calorie dense food. And then in the other population of animals, you give them just more of the the normal rat chow, right? So it doesn't have it's not this sad diet. And what he's shown is that. Um, over time, these the animals that have this sad diet really escalate their food intake and they become really overweight. 
And what he's demonstrated, and I don't want to get too much down into um, uh, the story because it is, I could, I could talk for hours. Um, but what he's shown <laughs> is that with this uh, increasing body mass, he's actually demonstrated that this is coupled and, and, and correlated with a down regulation. So a lowering in the brain of the, the receptors that bind dopamine. So over time, it's like what, what, what scientists are arguing is that you're, you're changing your hedonic or pleasured baseline. So imagine the brain is there, part of its role is to kind of maintain homeostasis or kind of a, a steady state, right? So you want to have a steady state of body temperature, you want to have a steady state of sugar, salt balance, all these things. And there's lots of neural hardware that is there to regulate these things because you don't want to be too out of, out of balance. And scientists believe that we all we have a pleasure balance, so a hedonic balance. And when you're constantly eating uh, or you're eating lots of high-fat, high-sugar foods, that's challenging that balance. So as a way to compensate, the brain will start to shut down uh, the systems that are normally activated by food or pleasure, right? So it down-regulates it. It kind of silences that dopamine signal. And so you can imagine that over time, you're seeing this downregulation of these systems. And so the baseline is shifting lower and lower and lower. And that's what's contributing to tolerance. You need more of that substance to get the same high. In this case, it would be the high fat, high sugar food. So all that is to say, uh, we see that with substances that um, there's lots of research that has shown that downregulation of this dopamine system or this reward pathway is what you see in substance use disorders. And now Paul Kenny has shown that you also see it with um, eating disorders. Okay. So I've heard like with uh, drug addictions, you sometimes go through like a detox where you don't have it for a month or two or whatever, but you can't do that with food. So that sounds makes it makes it sound really hard to um, mm -hmm. get off a food addiction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's why, again, it's important to recognize and highlight the fact that there is all these other circuits in the brain that are responsible for um, motivating organisms towards eating and then also the systems in the brain that uh, signal time to shut down, right? Time to stop eating. And all these circuits become dysregulated with um, eating disorders. And it's really, really hard to kind of reclaim, uh, quote unquote, normal. But I would also argue that that's why it's important to recognize the cause of the eating disorder. And it's, it's not just about treating the eating disorder. It's, treat, it's, it's at, um, targeting the reason for why that eating disorder exists. And it could be, um, you know, like genetics do play some role. But often we see a, a family history of trauma. We see individual history of trauma. Uh, and so we need to ensure that we're treating that psychologically, if not pharmacologically as well, in order to um, ensure that somebody is eating, still eating, right? But as not as feeling that loss of control when they're eating certain food sources. And that's why it's about mindful eating, getting back into eating foods that have... Um, they're not the, you know, the donuts. They're like whole foods, uh, you know, as Michael Pollan says. Because once you start food, eating eat food. better foods, your your brain will um, reverse the deregulation, right? To some extent, yeah. And uh, yes and no. I mean, food eating disorders have one of the highest rates of relapse oh. across any. Yeah, it's it, like especially anorexia. It's really, really hard because some scientists believe that the key circuits are they're almost and I hate to say this permanently dysregulated because 
the, the brain has tried to adapt to, in the case of anorexia, a low caloric intake. And bulimia, it's like unpredictable food intake. With obesity, it's, it's so much food intake. So, you know, there's still so much work we need to do because it's clear that um, we need to understand these systems better so that we can develop better treatment strategies yeah. for eating disorders. Okay, so uh, that's uh, enough about food. Let's talk about sex. Yay! Let's talk about sex. Uh, do you have? Do you hear like? Uh, is it salt and pepper? Salt <laughs> and pepper. Sex, baby. <laughs> I, don't know. I usually play that in in at the first uh, <laughs> opening to my lecture when it's on sex addiction. <laughs> uh, and and now my students are like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, it's too long ago. Are you? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so uh, sex addiction um, is less acknowledged by the scientific community there's um you know it's 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 dogged by the fact that there's lots of different terms to, de to describe you know the phenomenon known as sex addiction so people can use compulsive sexual behavior hypersexual disorder sex addiction there's something known as poopo poopo that's not that's <laughs> not science <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, we'll we'll get there. That's a so, children's that's a children's TV show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to just to kind of contextualize things, let's talk. Let's start ta talking about human sexual behavior to begin with. And I'm not going to talk about sex per se, but let's talk about you know what psychologists would suggest is kind of problematic sexual behavior, and they differentiate between something called they call paraphilic uh, philia, meaning love, and that is and para is above, right? Uh, think about a parachute up in the sky, so para above love, and and that is sexual arousal and gratification that is dependent upon fantasizing and engaging in sexual behavior that would be considered atypical and extreme. Um, so things like uh, fetishes, um, uh, uh, pedophilia would fall under that category of, of paraphilia. And so I want to, like, we're not going to talk about that today. That's something quite different. Uh, the other kind of um, differentiation is, is non-paraphilic uh, sexual behaviors. So those are uh, the behaviors that are culturally acceptable sexual urges and the behaviors that are to an excess, right? So masturbation, sex with strangers, online pornography, these are all to some extent culturally acceptable, but people who are uh, have this non-paraphilic compulsive sexual behavior, it's doing this to the extreme. And this is what uh, scientists are trying to define as sex addiction. Okay. So, um, yeah, and I just want to note that, that the medical community in science has a terrible history of medicalizing things like um, women who are sexually active and homosexuals and all that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. just because a sexual behavior is not acceptable by the culture doesn't mean it's an addiction and doesn't mean mm -hmm. that it is a um, a mental disorder either, right? So That's th right. And I think yeah. that we're constantly struggling with this, mm -hmm. you know. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, that said, you know, I, I think that a lot of practitioners anyway recognize that part of a addiction diagnosis means that you have it has to have disrupted your life right that's right so yeah. um you know that mm -hmm. that 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 will eliminate some of the paraphilic things that are like harm harmless for example but but what do they consider like an excessive say pornography or sex with strangers 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm glad that you've raised, raised that because some people would say, well, you know, you just have a very high sex drive, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do want to shout out like BDSM communities, like I like that has been dogged for um, for years about you know scientists saying that's abnormal. Well, people engage in very healthy relationships that involve BDSM. So let's just make sure that our listeners know that we are in a healthy, inclusive. Uh, conversations about sex and sexuality. So excessive, well, that's the challenge, right? Like with food and eating, sexual behavior is normal. It's difficult to quantify when something becomes abnormal. And some people just really have a high sex drive. The general guidelines some scientists are trying to use is uh, if you've heard of um, Kinsey, who is Mm -hmm. like one of the uh, incredible scientists that really started to systematically explore explore sexual behavior. And he used a... um, I guess it's an algorithm or uh, like, I'm trying to think of like the term variable, total sexual outlets or TSO. And so when in all his research, when he was looking and quantifying sexual behavior, he developed this total sexual outlets measurement. And if you want some kind of um, comparator, about three to five TSOs or total sexual outlets per week is the average male undergraduate. So what that means is that they're either masturbating three to four, five times a week, or they're engaging in consensual sex or sex uh, three to five times uh, per week. Any combination uh, of those things. Exactly. Yeah. And um, seven or above is considered a hypersexual disorder. But there's no agreement on that um, necessarily. It's just something that's been proposed by one of the scientists in um, hypersexual disorder known as Kafka. But again, if like a couple is having sex every day, that's seven plus. But like unless it's mm-hmm. causing them trouble, they probably wouldn't be diagnosed, right? Right. So it's it's not just about the quantity. Uh, you alluded to it earlier. It's that the behavior has become so compulsive, it takes over all other behaviors, even to the point of risking one's relationship, uh, your job, etc. right? So you can imagine... Um, if you are in a monogamous relationship and you are having sex with strangers, that's not acceptable in your marriage. Although there are some people who have open marriages and that's, that's all good. Um, but if you, uh, are engaging in sex with strangers, because that's the high that you're chasing, it puts your relationship at risk. Right. And there's also, um, some of the anecdotes and stories I tell in my classes is, you know, cases of, of young men or men that are at work and they can't stop masturbating. Right. So they're watching online pornography in the workplace. Now that's problematic, right? You can't control your urges to the point where you're masturbating in a public space. Um, and that's where we come to the term PUPO, which stands for Problematic Use of Online Pornography. It's not an uh, overall accepted term, but it's one that's been uh, used in the literature. And uh, this is really about the idea that you're, you're just, you're, you're engaging in pornography and, and watching pornography to the point where it's excessive, it's threatening your relationships, um, and your your marriage and your job, etc. And this can lead to something called PIED, yet another acronym, which is porn-induced erectile dysfunction. And this is really, really um, quite sad that some uh, males will get to the point that they can only achieve um, an erection and ejaculation through online pornography. And it really threatens their relationships with their partners, right? So uh, they may not be able to achieve an erection in a in their like uh, actual relationship because they're unable to get uh, stimulated to the point that they would be with pornography. And wor- most worrisome, this has seen uh, an increase in young men in the last decade. Oh no! So what's driving that? 
Well, back to our kind of analogy, um, when we think about how food has changed over the, the centuries and millennia, right? We're, we're, we're learning to create and manufacture, uh, food that is really designed to hyperactivate those key systems in the brain that say this is really delicious. By the same token, uh, online pornography is becoming increasingly mo um, more visually excessive. Uh, it's very, um, it's not what you would have seen in the Victorian uh, era of pornography, which was like, ooh, uh, you know, like a, like a vision of a nipple, right? It, it, the online pornography that we're seeing is, is it, A, it's highly accessible, and B, it's, it's much, much more visually um, erotic uh, that we would have seen in in previous generations. Yeah, it's, very, it's very vivid, right? So we have it's high very high quality audio, high quality mm -hmm. video, and that's that's, that's ignoring right. the content, which has also become uh, mm -hmm. more extreme. Mm -hmm. And so again, I do want to emphasize that watching pornography is not bad. It, it it's healthy, it's fine, but the the pornography that is causing it's it's not just the pornography, right? It's the combination of this kinds of uh, visually available pornography and then you've got the vulnerable individual right so it's important that our listeners recognize that it's not just about the stimulus it's also about the organism that's engaging in that uh, behavior okay um so what about some other behavioral addictions i've heard that there's a gambling a gambling addiction what's going on there yeah yeah, yeah. So gambling is is actually one of the oldest uh, recognized behavioral addictions, if you can believe it or, or not. Uh, there's actually uh, written texts, uh, uh, the Mahabharata, which is a, a an epic Hindu uh, er, text talking about this king that gambled away his uh, his his wife, his country, his children, right? He lost everything. So it, it's, it's been recognized in old texts and old literature uh, that gambling can be done to an excess. Um, and, and when I started my, my you know, research and my studies as a graduate student in addiction, gambling addiction was sort of like the, the best thing that, that scientists were saying, yeah, I guess it's kind of like an addiction, but they weren't even calling it an addiction. They were calling it like compulsive or pathological gambling. And now since uh, the, the new DSM or uh, 2013, it's now in the section on addictive disorders. So mm -hmm. they recognize that it is an addiction. And so, you know, you can, all of us can understand to some extent what pathological gambling looks like, right? You're, you, you go to a casino, you go to the slots, you play cards, you're betting on horses. Um, but it's that behavior that is gone to the extreme, right? You're, you're not just an occasional gambler. Um, you're showing this this preoccupation with getting to the casinos or the or the slot machines. You're needing to gamble with increasing amounts of money, which we would say is kind of an evidence of tolerance. You've got unsuccessful attempts to cut back. You're restless or irritable when you're attempting to cut down or stop, which is evidence of withdrawal. You're starting to gamble to escape from poor mood. You're you're chasing losses, which is the fancy term uh, scientists use that. Uh, describe when you're gambling the next day to recoup a loss, right? So you've gambled a ton of money, you've lost a bunch, you need to immediately get back to the, the casino or whatever to recoup that loss. You're lying to conceal the extent of your gambling. Uh, you're also losing, um, you, you've, you're not able to work or engage in, norm, in your healthy relationships because you're so focused on gambling and you're relying on others to get out of debt or borrow money or relieve desperation. And so that, that's pretty much um, the, the behaviors that we see with gambling. And 
uh, you can have folks that would be on the more mild or moderate or, or severe end of the spectrum. Okay, so that, those are sort of the things that a, um, a medical person can look for. Um, but your favorite question, what's going on in the brain, Kim? What's going on in the brain? <laughs> um, so this is where we are challenged by having no real behavioral models. We can't really get rats to gamble. I mean, there are some that are that have been developed, but they're really, really complex, and I don't think really are quite ecologically valid. So our tools are limited. And I do want to kind of backstep, and I didn't talk about sex addiction and what's happening in the brain, and we, we can actually get animals to develop compulsive sexual behaviors, um, but the, the data are, are not as interesting as I was it's say with um, the other behavioral addiction. So in gambling, it's mostly what our tools are with neuroimaging research. So what that means is we can get folks that have either a history of, of pathological gambling or not, and we can get them in a, like something like an fMRI, a functional magnetic resonance imaging, uh, um, uh, like the what do they call it? The tunnel. Uh, and you can essentially get them to engage in gambling-like behavior in the MRI, and you can see what, what circuits in the brain are activated, right? But the really cool thing is that we have some interesting clues about what leads to gambling addiction or what, what the neurobiological basis of gambling addiction is, thanks to the development of something called L-DOPA. What's that? Well, Eldova or Levodopa is a drug that's used to treat Parkinson's disease. Now, bear with me. Parkinson's disease is a, is a behavioral, neurobehavioral disorder that is uh, caused by loss of cells in the part of the brain known as the substantia nigra. So it's these, another population of dopamine producing cells. Uh, that signal into other diverse regions of the brain, very similar to the mesocorticolimbic dopamine pathway. And that loss of these, these cell populations leads to uh, a, a dementia, so memory loss, cognitive um, functioning that's been uh, affected, and then also it's um, a motor disorder, right? So folks with Parkinson's disease have trouble initiating uh, voluntary um, motor behaviors. So they have struggles starting to walk. They show like these resting tremors and so on and mm. so forth. So levodopa is a drug that is essentially, it's like, um, it, it's, it's, it's leading to increased production of dopamine in the brain, right? So patients will take levodopa. It's actually the precursor to the synthesis of dopamine. And you're kind of skipping one of the biosynthetic path, steps in the pathway. And what's, it's kind of artificially leading to dopamine being produced in the brain. And, uh, what's interesting is that in some populations of folks that have Parkinson's and then are prescribed L-dopa, they develop compulsive gambling. So you treat them for Parkinson's and some of them become gambling addicts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. What, and s wait, what does that tell us? Well, it, it, it says that somehow pathological gambling must be related to activation of the mesolimbic dopamine pathway because that's what the L-DOPA is producing or, or leading to is activation of this pathway to some extent because it's not specifically targeting the cells that have died in Parkinson's. It's targeting other cells that are still alive mm -hmm. that do produce dopamine that are getting some kind of blip into those regions of the brain that produce motor control. And in one study, what they did was they took Parkinsonian patients that either did or did not have uh, pathological gambling, 
And they underwent another kind of brain scanning technique known as PET or positron emission thermography scanning. And that's just looking at um, not necessarily structural changes in the brain, but at which pathways are activated. And they got them to engage in a gambling task. And what they found was that patients who did have pathological gambling had essentially increased dopamine release in those brain regions compared to folks that did not have pathological gambling. So in some, what this is telling us is that Somehow, what, what I think is happening is that you're, you're providing that almost exogenous boost of dopamine when you're engaging in a gambling task, and that with that boost of dopamine, it's promoting uh, the likelihood of that developing into a compulsive behavior. Now, it's important to recognize, like, some people will be thinking, well, why just compulsive gambling? Why not, like, alcoholism or, or alcohol use disorder or uh, other use disorders. Well, when you think about the population of folks who have Parkinson's disease, they're typically folks that are in their 60s and 70s. Yes, you can get early onset Parkinson's, but I'm really focusing on that. But folks that are older, right, it tends mm. to occur later in life, often when folks are living in retirement communities. And what is it that seniors do? They go to raves and take ecstasy. <laughs> Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Close. That bus comes, right? The free bus to the casino, yep, right? Yep. I don't know if yet. Yeah, like this is like casinos are so wry. They're 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 savvy, right? They're like free trip to the casino, right? Free entertainment. So it's it, that's probably what you know can explain why we're seeing gambling, uh, compulsive gambling, as opposed to other use disorders. I do also want to mention that you will see sometimes compulsive sexual behaviors that occur as a result of levodopa. No. So, so it's just yeah, that boost of dopamine. I'm I'm confused about something. Sure. So we're talking about increases in dopamine being related to addictive behaviors, but earlier you were talking about a downregulation of dopaminergic mm-hmm. whatever. So. Is it going up or down? Or what's the relationship there? Well, so it's complex. It, what we tend to see is that you're getting with, as addictions progress, you're getting an increase in the firing rate of those dopamine producing cells. But the, you know, I don't want to get too much, the... You're having cell populations that are releasing dopamine, but it's important that they're also the receptors that bind dopamine are also working to the same extent. Okay. And what you see is a downregulation of those receptors. So the, mm. the, the cells are firing more and, and again, this is kind of complex, but the firing actually ends up being less to the, the actual primary reinforcer or the drug or the, the gamble. And it becomes more, you, you have those cells that are firing in response to the secondary reinforcers, which are the stimuli that are associated with uh, the, the primary reinforcers. So when so, the bus comes, for example, so you, right, you might get addicted right. to, like the bus comes and yeah, activates yeah, yeah, yeah. your system yes. and then you feel addicted yes. to get on the bus and then it goes that's from right. there. That's right. Yep. So all those cues, that's what's promoting this, this uh, disinhibition of those cells that are firing dopamine. Dopamine. And then, but then what to compensate, the brain is downregulating those receptors that bind dopamine. So you're getting more of that dopamine being released, but less of it being uh, having action post synaptically. You're also getting uh, inputs that are GABAergic and glutamatergic, so silencing and act exciting from different brain regions that also tend to regulate those pathways. So it's, it is quite complex. 
but suffice it to say that you get uh, this dopamine boost, um, but it's silenced in many, many ways. Okay, is but is the um, is the silencing and the downregulation a response to there being more dopamine? Yes. Yeah. So okay. So so yes. like in the short term, it causes more dopamine, but your your brain yeah. in response to that downregulates its ability to pass it through the system, which means that's that you right. need even more dopamine to get the same uh, mental yeah. state. Oh, that's that's, that's right. insidious. That, um, yeah, that's that's tolerance. Yeah. Okay. Great. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So um. Now, gambling is is in a, uh, something that's impulsive, and, and we talked about impulsion and compulsion a bit. Is dopamine related to that kind of behavior? Somewhat, yeah. So impulsivity and compulsivity are, are both constructs that are, they're used to define um, behaviors that are, you know, and it's multifaceted, right? So we can think about impulsivity as the notion about th- like acting without thinking, um, th- you know, behaving without reflecting on the actions of your uh, or the consequences of your behavior. Compulsivity is more like kind of feeling like compelled, like you're driven by this internal force to and keep even if going. you are thinking, you can't stop it. That's right. And you think about that in the context of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, when you keep washing your hands repeatedly, um, uh, uh, even in spite of already having washed your hands, right? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's definitely something about like these traits of impulsivity and compulsivity that seem to be related to a lot of psychiatric disorders, including addiction. And there seems to be something about impulsivity and gambling and impulsivity and addiction outright. So folks who have uh, addi- uh, gambling addiction tend to score very highly on tests of impulsivity. So you can take these pen and paper tests. Uh, and then you can also have these behavioral tests of impulsivity. And what we know is that if you're scoring highly on these measures or these behaviors, this also seems to relate to um, differential activation of parts of that prefrontal cortex as well as the reward pathway. So very briefly, if you can imagine, uh, you, you have that population of cells in the midbrain, those dopamine-producing cells, and they target or synapse onto the very front part of your brain. That's called the prefrontal cortex. And so this specific pathway is really crucial for the organism to be signaled to the front part of the brain so that it guides behavior in the future because our prefrontal cortex is our time-traveling device, right? So if you're engaging in something really awesome and exciting, that signal to the prefrontal cortex is going to say, remember this, plan for this in the future next time you're bored or you want to get uh, high. Uh, And certainly gambling is about risk-taking, right? It's Mm risk-taking behavior. Uh, When we gamble, we're we're putting uh, at risk something of value with the aim to potentially gain something of even greater value, right? So we put down five bucks on a craps table with the hope that we might win 5,000. And we know that um, people who are highly impulsive tend to make more risks. And certainly this is this is this relationship with gambling addiction. And it's related to the prefrontal cortex we think isn't really signaling back down to those uh, lower brain regions to say, this probably isn't a good idea, right? So that acting without thinking, failing to think about the consequences of your actions, maybe you're, you're, you don't have a ton of money, but you're at the, the casino, the, you know, the lights are flashing, the music's pumping, you've had a couple drinks. Oh, why not? Why not put all my rent money down on this table? Because, hey, I might win, right? Somebody who's like the prefrontal cortex is acting in the way that it should or acting really well would say, ah, maybe not such a good idea, right? Your rent's due next week. Uh, if you lose this, uh, you're not going to be able to pay your rent, right? So it's, it's, it's these kind of circuits and these behaviors that seem to become pathological 
Right. The prefrontal cortex is really important for many reasons. So it, as you mentioned, it, it's about, um, you know, imagining the future, um, which we've talked about in other episodes. But it's also about evaluating decisions. And, and aren't there a whole lot of inhibitory mm-hmm. connections from the prefrontal cortex to the rest of the brain? I, I like to think of it like it's our it's it's like the thing that keeps us from acting on our baser desires when it's functioning mm-hmm. properly. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, it, you know, the prefrontal cortex is thought to be sort of what separates humans from many other organisms, right? It's like, it's like the basis of our, like, ability to be civilized and to um, not, you know, work on our base impulses. And, uh, you know, by the same token, it's kind of, we think about the evolution of the brain, all the neural hardware that was added as the brain developed was kind of added on top of the older hardware. And it was added in such a way that was sort of almost tenuous, right? Because we kept having to loop in the old circuits with the new circuits. You're adding in old to new, old to new, old to new. And that prefrontal cortex that now has all these, it's all these loops back to those other older brain regions. And for that reason, it's, it, well, we, for some reason, it is the part of the brain that's most susceptible to damage. And that's why a lot of psychiatric disorders involve dysregulation of parts of the prefrontal cortex. And, you know, we think about this, the relationship with impulsivity and impulsive choice. It's in things like ADHD, right? Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, to some extent, it's um, in uh, some features of depression and anxiety is is losing the ability to inhibit thoughts that are you know like oh i'm terrible i'm a horrible human right it's it's it, it's mm. it's so ingrained in lots of things but it importantly it's it's the patterns of these circuits that are unique uh to every uh psychiatric condition so what you're seeing that's different in addiction uh, what in addiction what you're seeing is a differential activation of the prefrontal cortex which is different and unique from ADHD, which is different and unique from depression. Okay. So we had a whole episode on the effect of social media on psychology. Uh, but I want to ask you finally about um, internet addiction. It really seems like some people, um, and I won't mention any names, but they're addicted to their smartphones. <laughs> is, <laughs> is that a real thing? <laughs> Uh, yes. So, uh, yeah. So I want to touch on a few things. So, you know, the digital um, space, right? So, you know, it, early on, it's computers, and then the internet. And then we've got things like gaming, um, pornography online. And then we've got smartphones, and then we've got social media, like all of these things um, is kind of fall under the, the umbrella of like digital addictions, right, or internet addictions, to some extent. Now, increasingly what we're seeing is the development of something called internet gaming disorder. And this was actually identified in that most recent edition of the DSM-5 as kind of a disorder to watch uh, with a, a set of, in fact, proposed criteria. So what that says is that of all the things that I just outlined, internet gaming disorder is the one that people are kind of, psychiatrists are like, yeah, this is becoming a real issue and we need to actually develop criteria to diagnose this because we need to develop treatments. People are really not doing well, right? So um, when we're talking about internet gaming disorder, it's it's around um, these things like those MMOs. You know what an MMO is? Uh, massive um, something. 
<laughs> Massive multiplayer online role playing games, right? Yeah, MMORPGs. MMO yeah. yeah. So you know these MMOs, people are at home. They've got you know their headsets on. They're 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 playing with other folks, right? They're playing mm -hmm. either with or against other folks. Like the the animation is really wonderful, right? They've they've really developed a lot of great technology to make it feel like it's immersive, right? Mm -hmm. And people playing these games, it's become really problematic in parts of uh, the world, particularly in the Asian Pacific, so uh, South Korea and China, uh, where the estimates of how many folks have this internet gaming disorder are, are pretty high. I don't know the exact statistics, but uh, it's, it's becoming quite problematic. So the idea is that folks are engaging in the internet to, to engage in things like games, often with other players, and it leads to clinically significant impairment or distress. Uh, and they can show one of, you know, one of the following. They can be preoccupied, right? So that preoccupation, remember, loss of control or re uh, reward-seeking behavior. Uh, so preoccupation with the internet games, you're thinking about the, the gaming activity, anticipating playing the next game, becomes the dominant activity in daily life. Um, the withdrawal symptoms when it's taken away, so irritable, anxious, sad, uh, tolerance, so you're needing to spend more time, uh, amount of time, um, increasing amount of time engaged in internet games. You're not having, not being able to control or cut down the use. Uh, you're losing interest in other hobbies and entertainment. You're continuing despite knowing that it's leading to psychosocial problems. You've deceived family members, therapists, or others regarding the amount of time that you're, uh, you're in, engaged in internet gaming. Uh, using to escape or relieve negative mood, which is uh, very common in addictions outright. And you've jeopardized or lost a significant relationship or job or educational career opportunity because of this participation. Yeah, but it sounds so, a lot like... It sounds a lot like your list for the gambling disorder. Exactly. Yeah. So it's and, and substance use disorders in general, right? So those key figure, pieces of preoccupation, tolerance, withdrawal, uh, like your diminished role functioning, you're not able, like you're losing your job, your marriage, etc. Um, you're 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 engaging in the use to relieve uh, negative affect, poor mood, etc. So it's very these very similar. Uh, clinical um, symptomatology. I mean, that, that sounds like the answer to like one of the original questions that we started in the podcast is that are is our behavioral addictions really addictions? And it really sounds mm -hmm. like, um, you know, given that they have similar symptoms uh, in the mm -hmm. brain and in behaviors, that that's very good support for the idea that these are addictions in the same way that not alcoholism or drug addiction can be. Exactly. Mm hmm. Yeah, and you're seeing uh, the same pathways that tend to be activated with substance use disorders or addictions are also activated with internet uh, gaming disorders. So uh, a lot, you know, there's a lot of beautiful research coming out of the Asian Pacific, uh, no surprise, because you've got a lot of uh, scientists there that are studying the phenomenon that's quite local. And in a, in a fairly recent paper, um, they did a PET study, again, looking at brain activation of subjects that met criteria for internet gaming disorder. And what they found is that uh, when they were engaging in this gaming activity, they showed very little um, glucose metabolism, which is essentially um, like cells that are active, they take up glucose, right? So mm -hmm. if they're, if you're very active, you're picking up a lot of glucose. 
And they're seeing less activation in parts of the brain, uh, the prefrontal cortex in particular, right? So they're not a those those cells are not able to inhibit those lower brain regions. And they also remember that eating um, study I showed you, I talked to you about with uh, Paul Kenny, where he got the rats yeah. to eat this high fat diet, and you saw reduced. Um, Act, uh, expression of specific receptors that bind dopamine. Well, lo and behold, they also see the same thing in internet gaming disorder, reduced uh, um, receptors for dopamine. And this correlated negatively with years of overuse. So what that means is that the longer they've engaged or they've been in this pathological state, the less of these receptors that they have. So mm. it suggests that it is actually causal, right? Look, so even though this is a correlational, it's like over time, right? So that's why we need more longitudinal, not just cross-sectional studies to really look at how the brain is changing. Wow. Okay. So let's get to smartphone addiction away from games and just smartphones in general, which are multi-purpose computers, which I think is part of what makes mm -hmm. them so attractive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have a lot of tools at our fingertips, literally, right? And I, the, the data are really emerging. There's not a lot that's that's out there that's really characterizing this, but there are scientists that are starting to develop scales to measure smartphone addiction, for example. And all I can say is that like, we really need to be mindful of this, particularly among our youth, and recognize that app de developers in particular are often, they, they're hiring people that have psychology and neuroscience degrees. They know about the neuroscience of reward and neuroscience of addiction, and they develop their apps to keep you there. Wow. Okay, well, how about things like uh, work? Are there workaholics or exercise or something like that? Can you be addicted to those things? Well, that's t it's tough to say, and I think we need to to revert back to our definitions of addiction, right? So loss of control over reward-seeking behavior. Do, do these things activate the same neural circuits to the same extent that uh, we see with other behavioral addictions and, su and, and uh, substance addictions? And then do we also see the same patterns in that you tend to see people engaging in these activities where it's pathological, it's causing psychological distress, and they also have a family history of trauma or personal history of trauma or something that is leading them to mm. the development of these behaviors that's become pathological. Mm. And so, you know, the, the future is wide open. Uh, I think exercise is a bit challenging because it is a behavior that is that actually is leads to health and wellness. And it actually helps regulate um, your emotions and your motivational states. So it's difficult to say, although there are, you know, athletes like Olympians that will... Uh, exercise to the point of vomiting, exhaustion. Uh, they'll exercise even if they're injured, right? So, um, but certainly, you know, there, there, you know, you can see these sort of addictive-like behaviors, and I think we just need to keep an eye on it. And workaholism, same thing. People getting a rush. Like, are they, you know, are they super productive? Because that's what's driving it. What's driving that? You know. So I think we we just need to keep keep looking. Yeah. Okay. So there. Okay. So all these, you know, substance addictions, behavioral addictions have similar um, brain responses, they have similar symptoms. Are they similarly treated? Somewhat. So we have to be mindful of the fact that with substance addictions, there is the detox piece, right? So part of treatment, particularly with things like alcohol and opioid addictions, mm -hmm. you really need to, that needs to be managed pharmacologically, right? You can't cold turkey alcohol, you could die. Uh, and opioids, it feels 
terrible. Uh, so often that's managed with some pharmacological relief. But ultimately, I think the key to treating addictions broadly is, un again, unpacking the cause of the addiction. Addiction is not the disease, but the symptom of something else. And I think scientists in particular, like, well, clinicians need to be recognizing this in particular with things like eating disorders and sex addiction, because often they, they are treating the food disorder or they're treating the, the sex addiction when they need to kind of unpack why, why has that individual, you know, developed this compulsive, uh, preoccupied state. And I think that that's the key. And that's why I keep arguing and I'm, you know, me and others that they need to be recognized in the same, um, in the same spectrum so that we can develop treatments that adequately assess what the actual issue is. Right. Okay, good. So if you think you might be addicted to something, you should see a medical professional and probably get therapy, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I want to close with this. If you get a strong desire at the beginning of every month to listen to the new episode of Mining the Brain, it does not necessarily mean you are addicted to our podcast. It means that you have something that neuroscientists call good taste. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kim. Minding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, funded in part by a Carleton SSHRC Knowledge Mobilization Grant, and made possible by leap years, preventing winter from turning into summer every 400 years. If you want to support Minding the Brain, please consider leaving us a review in your podcast app of choice, as it will help make our podcast more visible to potential listeners. If you'd like to follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Minding the Brain. Music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Mm -hmm.